job training down there, so he's going to be out of the picture for a couple of days. So, If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. And as you can tell, we're building week by week, uh, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, uh, on probably the greatest single book in all uh, of the Bible that really lays out uh, the ministry. I'm really looking forward to the ladies' meetings this time. A uh, uh, couple of reasons for that. Uh, I think that uh, that they have grown and, and, and matured to the place where uh, they're ready to take on, you know, a next dimension. Our speaker this week is going to be Betsy Christensen, who I think will uh, be probably one of the greatest speakers we ever had. I asked her if she was ready today. She said she hasn't stopped thinking about it for the last three months. So uh, since I asked her, I'm not sure if that means she's raring to go or she's nervous to go, but either way, she'll do a great job. And uh, Christensen's are a great part of this church and their families. And uh, they love the Lord, and uh, uh, I just really look forward to, to hearing what she's got to say. But I'm looking forward to <clears throat> being able to get this thing uh, to the point where we really begin to help everybody uh, that wants to do this to be able to have a, a accountability factor for your principles. Uh, today we're going to look at probably one of the greatest single promises in the Bible, and <clears throat> if not all of the Bible, uh, on the aspect of ministry, but really the aspect of life. If there's any passage that deserves a three-by-five card in your life, and probably most of you do not have this one, uh, this is one that you'll want to do today. This is something that uh, I don't know of any other verse that really keeps everything uh, that we do in the ministry in perspective uh, better than this one single verse. You know, the ministry and you potentially working with people and that's what the ministry is. And our goal is to have you to the point, like we talked about last week, I want to build a specialized group of people. It's not a group of people that I go through and say, yes, no, yes, yes, no, no, yes, no. You can, you can't. But you choose yourself. And you're, you've been around here long enough now that you ought to be uh, able to do that. You've been here, if you've been here a year, at least a year, you can pretty much figure out where you want to go from this point or not. I'm not going to be the one to, to limit you in what you do. I will allow you to limit yourself in what you do. But my goal, as I talked last week, when I laid out that the church is kind of like a hospital, and in a hospital you have all kinds of specialty people who do all kinds of things, but yet they all work together for a common good, which is to help people and heal people. Well, that's what I want to build in a spiritual aspect. I want to bring us to the point where we really uh, are able to do that. But I want you to know that the ministry is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Uh, simply for the fact, not in doing it, it's easy to do it. But the hard thing about the ministry, and, and these are the things that you need to understand. These are the things that you need to glean out of what I'm trying to do with you on Sunday uh, morning. It's not doing the ministry that's hard. It's in ministry, you always have to keep the balance of why you're doing what you're doing. To me, one of the greatest key words in ministry is simply the word perspective. The word perspective means uh, seeing things as they really are, not how they sometimes appear. I think that is the single number one problem that we all struggle with 
when you get into dealing in ministry with people. A uh, number of factors for that. First of all, <clears throat> we all have emotions. It's hard for us to, uh, you know, keep those emotions out, and yet uh, you've heard me say time and time again that you have to learn to be able to do that to a certain degree. Well, I mean, I'm not telling you to be devoid of emotions, but you have to keep those emotions within parameters of the Bible principles. You know, you're going to find that many times uh, we get a, influenced by people's opinions. I don't know how many times, you know, I've, and, and I'm going to tell you, the ministry is a, can be a really, not can be, the ministry is a really a frustrating thing if you don't keep the perspective right. You're going to invest many times hours of your life with somebody else who's got issues. You're going to do things with them. You're going to create scenarios where you actually bring them in to your family or into things that you do because you know they need that. And you're going to, how do you do that without, and you're going to, you obviously you love them and you feel bad for them and you want to help them. How in the world do you keep yourself in balance with your emotions or what people think about circumstances? You're going to try to help people and you're going to see what their needs are and and you're going to uh, put time into them, and somebody else is going to come and say, that person is worthless, you're an idiot, wasting your time with it. You, those things impact you. They got to, if you're human. I mean, you have to have some kind. You're going to have people that you work with, you pour yourself into, you show them the biblical principles, and they got some issue in their life, and out of the clear blue, they're going to go talk to somebody else, they're going to get another opinion from somebody who has no idea about the Bible, they're going to talk to their grandma, their grandpa, or their family over here, they're going to give them something contrary to the Word of God, and they're going to go with that over what you give them in the Bible. How do you deal with that? Other than killing them. And sometimes, you know, it's a thing where it gets really hard. Uh, it's hard not to take things personal. I think that's the, and you've heard me say this many, many times, I think that's the, the biggest issue that we all have to struggle with and learn to control. And then you add to that, I don't know about you, but I got my own problems. I got my own issues I'm struggling with in life. How do you separate all of that out? And then, you know, you get in husband and wife relationships where they have problems and they can be catastrophic in their, in, to their degree of, of the problems they have. And, you know, it's a he says, she says deal. How do you, you got to guard against taking sides in situations. As a, as a minister or somebody working with people, you don't, in very few cases, is, is one right and the other is wrong. Now, there are exceptions to that. I mean, I have been in situations where the guy was dead wrong and the wife was doing everything that she could do. Those are, those are, those are situations that are exceptions to that. I've been in reverse situations where the guy's trying to do everything that needs to be done in the Bible. The woman wants nothing to do with it. She wants her own lifestyle, wants to do what she wants to do. You have those scenarios. But it's, it gets very confusing, and it gets hard to stay in balance. And, you know, I, I told you last week the church is like a hospital, and you got all different kind of wards where people do what they think. But, you know, the church is also like a high school. You know that? Uh, I don't know, you know, there's, if you know it in the Bible, in the Bible there's seven classes that every church had to teach, just like a high school class. It's one of the most amazing studies you'll ever take. And, you know, high schools have choirs. 
So churches have choirs. You're our choir. They have sports teams. We have a sports team. And yet, in most high schools, they have a drama club. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of drama. <coughs> Doing the ministry the way God wants it to be done, I think when I say that, I mean that it's pleasing to God in everything that we do, the ministry. You know, when it's all said and done, uh, the popular phrase today is at the end of the day, that's really what it's really all about anyhow, that what we do for God in ministry really pleases Him. And I want to talk about how to do that today, and I want to show you probably one of the greatest principles in the Bible, if not the single greatest principle. I'm, I'm sure it is the single greatest principle, no question about it. It's something that, you know, there's some things that you learn about God in the Bible that you can put them on three-by-five cards, you can put them in your Bible, mark the verses, but there's something you use every day in your life, and it has to stay in your mind all the time. And this is one of them that we're going to talk about today. When we get into the counseling stuff, per se, here next year, and I'm going to lay out that structure, how we're going to do that for the ladies' group and then for the guys' group, so when you go out of here, at least you'll know my thinking on it and get some ideas from you. But I pretty much have it laid out in my mind what, how I'm going to do it and what I'm going to do. But, you know, one of the things I'm going to do, and I learned this years and years ago, that the value of the Old Testament, most people read the Old Testament, they think it's boring. They don't understand it. And I admit that there's a lot of things going on in the Old Testament. That, uh, but one of the great things that it does is the Old Testament is in a, storm, a sto- uh, form of stories. When you get into the New Testament, past the Gospels, you don't have any more stories. <clears throat> All the book of Acts is kind of like a running commentary of what everybody's doing. That's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But once you really get past that, <clears throat> there's no more stories in the Bible. The stories in the Old Testament are there for a reason. And this is what, in time, you have to learn. I had a guy call me this week, and we were talking on the phone, another pastor, and he's a good friend of mine, and he asked me, he says, let me ask, well, I got you on the phone. He says, I got a situation in my church here. He says, I have a lady who is really, uh, she's just jealous about everything. What would you do with somebody who's jealous? And I said, well, I said, first of all, what I would do is that I would take her to the greatest story in the Bible on jealousy. And I said, that's in the Old Testament. And what I would do is I would take her back to that story, show her this story, show her why this person was jealous, what the root problem of it was, and then I would go to the New Testament and bring in all the principles over to put the thing together. That's what the Old Testament does. When we get into the counseling side of things, I'm going to show you that for everything you want to talk about, whether it be jealousy, bitterness, if you have some satanic stronghold in your life, you know, whether it be uh, drugs or homosexuality or whatever it is, uh, in, or alcohol, there's a way in the Bible to break that satanic stronghold. It's a story in the Old Testament. You may have depression. They may have you on some kind of antidepressive medicine. Or you may want to stay on that the rest of your life. If you don't want to be medicated and be a part of the walking dead crowd, if you really want to have the victory, well, there's a story in the Bible that shows you how to overcome depression. When you get that story or the story on breaking satanic strongholds or jealousy or whatever, and you get the New Testament principles, the story forms the format of the picture that illustrates what the person is. You see the person in it, 
how they got out of it, how they got into it, and then you bring over the New Testament principles, voila. That's how you deal with those things, you see. And we're going to learn every one of them. There's probably about 60 of them in the Old Testament that in time we're going to go through and we're going to look at. But in, in Genesis chapter 5, in understanding what we're talking about today, I think you have one of the greatest pictures of what our life should be. And if we want a model of us in the Old Testament, it would be in Genesis chapter 5 with a man, and now you all know who he is, his name is Enoch. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, it says, And Enoch lived uh, sixty and five years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah three hundred years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And that's a great verse because Enoch's the only man in the Bible who never dies. And he's a picture of you and me. I don't understand all the circumstances back there. I don't understand everything that happened. But I do know this. At some point, Enoch in his walk with God, God came down and took him to heaven. In other words, he raptured him out. And when he raptured him out, it was a perfect picture of what the day that Christ is going to come and take us out. In fact, if you put the whole chronology in, in, a, in a context, it's quite incredible. Enoch goes out in Genesis chapter 5. God's judgment falls in Genesis chapter 6. Noah goes into an ark through the judgment, and then God comes out in chapter 8 and 9 and restores everything, and off they go. What you got is a picture of the church going up before the tribulation, Enoch, Noah representing the nation of Israel, the great flood picture of the tribulation period, and then when Christ comes out, you got a rainbow. You got a rainbow there, you got a rainbow over in Revelation, and it's all a picture of the events that's going to come. But Enoch's a picture of you and me. Enoch's life, the uh, Bible says his life that he pleased God. You get that from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. There's not much in the Bible about Enoch, but what is is quite incredible. It says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says, By faith, Enoch was translated. That means he was raptured. Enoch was not, for God took him, verse 24. You didn't have that cross-reference. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, didn't die, and was not found. Went home to heaven to be with the Lord, raptured, because God translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, and here's where it really is. Here's ministry. His testimony was that he pleased God. You see, we get the false assumption, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have a testimony that pleases others. We should. Your testimony for the Lord is what you have that testifies the fact that you're a Christian. I'm not saying it shouldn't be over and above board and be right uh, with, with people that you work with and your friends. Certainly, it, most certainly it should. But I think it goes a little deeper than that. The real testimony you have is not necessarily with your friends or your family. The real testimony you have is the one that you have with God. And if that one is right, I guarantee you the other one will be right. And I think that's fundamentally a problem in many Christians' lives. Their testimony is not before men in any way, shape, or form, or it's up and down, and they struggle with it. And the reason why they struggle with it is because they haven't gotten it deep enough yet. When your testimony is with God that you please God, I guarantee you whatever else you're doing in life is going to be just fine. And that's a great concept. Bible says in his life that he pleased God. Verse 6 tells you that it was by faith. <coughs> Yet, when you study a little bit farther on, you find that he had a ministry that is much like yours and mine. And Enoch was a preacher 
Because in the book of Jude, uh, verse 14, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. <laughs> He's preaching the second coming of Christ, what, 6,000 years before the second coming of Christ is going to take place. That old boy believed some things. And his walk with God, God obviously shared some things with him that he wasn't sharing with everybody else. And yet your life and my life should be just like Enoch's. We ought to walk with God. And our testimony ought to please God first. And then when it pleases God, then it is what it is to the world. But when in times we get it backwards, <clears throat> he's a preacher. You ought to be a preacher. It doesn't mean you are a pastor, but you ought to be a preacher. And your life ought to be such that you're telling people that God's judgment is coming. And uh, just like uh, we, he was doing it, we should be doing it. Enoch's life is just like yours. Very small. Four verses in the Old Testament, I think three verses in the New Testament. But these are absolutely invaluable in you and I understanding what our ministry should be, that the first aspect of ministry has to be us pleasing God. Now, as a child of God, as God's priest, when we get involved in ministry, this concept is so important that we always have the victory. Uh, Christianity is a defeated Christianity. And I understand all the ramifications of why, and I'm not going to get into that this morning. <clears throat> I want to show you how not to be in that, in that scenario. And I know when you talk about, you look around the world today, <clears throat> and the world, <clears throat> Christian world, I'm not even talking about the unsaved world, I'm talking about the Christian world. When you look around the Christian world today, there isn't much to get excited about. You see, God's people are, I mean, I've said it many, many times. Today, God's people, there's really, in most cases, there's no difference between unsaved people. You may be saved and on your way to heaven, but your lifestyle shows nothing different between the two. I mean, God's people do the exact same things that saved people do. You know what? They always have. I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the world in Christianity where saved people didn't do things that unsaved people do. You know what the difference is? It doesn't bother you anymore. God's people today just sin and they yawn. They get into sin and, and cause all kinds of problems and uh, they think something's wrong with you because you want to do what's right. In reality, <clears throat> you know, this is the problem. And this is what we're up against. It would seem almost impossible, maybe from your standpoint, uh, th to have the victory. How do you have the victory when <clears throat> Christianity is a, such a defeated Christianity? And I want, I want to answer that for you today because the only way you're ever going to be pleasing to God in your testimony, I don't know if you know it or not, but the world that Enoch lived in was the same world that Noah was in. And that Bible says that the only imagination of every man on this planet was to do evil. In other words, if Enoch can have a testimony to please God in the world as wicked as it was, why can't you and I? And this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. Now you're going to find, and I hope that you... I hope that you uh, <clears throat> begin to see this. Uh, <clears throat> the victory here that you and I have is not just in Christ itself. That's a term. There's a lot more to it than that. We get hung up on terminology. It's like the word salvation. You know, we throw around the term, get saved, be saved, salvation. But yet there is absolutely so many intricate things in understanding the concept of salvation. But the victory that we have in Christ that pleases God, it's not something that we necessarily do. It starts with the attitude that we have. And it's that old thing of attitude and action. A lifestyle with the right perspective 
and how it develops itself and everything that we need to do. And you're going to see now that once I have defined these concepts, action, attitude, and all these things, we're going to be using them over and over again. And that is by design because I want, one, you to become familiar with it, but two, I want you to see how these, these concepts, as I define them to you, or oh, by next week, while I'm thinking up before I forget, next Sunday we'll get our next 30 principles. Well, I'm glad I thought about that. But as we build on these, we're going to see how we use this. And the ability for you and me to live above the circumstances. Come to the point where we have that high tower concept, the Tower of David that we talked about before. You know, a while back, I talked to you about the motive, our motive behind why we minister, what we do, what we do, and how important that is. And our passage today will show you or try to show you how to accomplish all of this. Uh, these verses today, uh, once you fully understand them and learn how to apply them, and I guarantee you they need to go on the three-by-five card, <coughs> will keep in check those three vital aspects of ministry we need to keep uh, in context and in balance. And they are simply perspective. You've got to have the right perspective. Perspective is the absolutely where you're at in your life in relationship to what God wants you to do, how you view it. And perspective is everything. <coughs> you hear people say all the time, you know, you can look at a half a cup of water. Some people say it's half full. Some people say it's half empty. That's based on your perspective. When you look at something, how do you see it? That's perspective. And when you look at it from biblical principles or what I'm going to talk about with you today, it's one way. When you look at it from your own standpoint, then it's another way. But perspective always leads to the second important thing, and that is motive. And motive is built uh, when you get the right perspective, then it affects your motive. And motive is what drives you. Motive is what drives you. The motive behind what you do. It's the engine that pushes you forward when everybody else is standing still. It's the force within Christianity that makes it work for you when it maybe doesn't work for the person sitting next to you. And then after that, you have the attitude of heart. And attitude of heart is why you do what you do. These three things have to be kept into balance in your life. You have to understand perspective. You have to always keep the right motive. And you have to always have the right attitude of heart about what you're trying to accomplish. Because in dealing with people and their issues, let me tell you something. Sometimes it can get really confusing. The ministry today has uh, all three of these things completely lost. Uh, there's so much confusion. It's so out of balance. I mean, it's sometimes you look at scenarios and you just think, where do I start? I mean, it's like peeling back the leaves of an onion. It just, there's so many leaves to it, you get down to the core of it. And Christianity today has, for the most part, not only is it defeated, it's, it's, it's dead in the water. It's going nowhere. And it's simply because that we lost, you know, all of these three concepts and we're out of balance. If you would want one phrase that would, I would think would, would, lay out ministry today as far as what it's supposed to or what it is and how it's drive, driven and the perspective and the motive and the attitude of heart, I'd simply say that the ministry today is all results orientated. We're that way because that's the way the world is. That's the way the business world is. Every motive, every perspective, every attitude we have is about how big and better we can get. And now uh, we can make this, uh, we can make this uh, in the... Uh, you know, in the name of wanting people to get saved, and that's what happens. We always rationalize things. 
you know, we want to do what we want to do, so we kind of put a Christian slant on it to help us put it together so we can get the angle that we want to get on it and how we get it going here. Oh, okay. This is a, something that we need to stop the service for, ladies and gentlemen. I just got a message from the President of the United States who is Skyping in on our thing. And he says, my dog tags are clanking on the microphone. And he cannot hear the sermon. Please take them off. Sincere regards, President Obama. <laughs> I want to keep this. <clears throat> Okay, we always rationalize things. We always come to the point that, and this is what churches do. We want to do, and this is what God's people do. We want to do what we want to do, so we always put a Christian slant to it. And the Christian slant is, is the fact that, okay, let's find a reason to do this. I've actually, honest to goodness, I've, I've heard this. I've even read it, and I've heard pastors say it. They take Baptist off their name, which you know I'm a big stickler for. And the reason why they, they justify taking Baptist off their name is because they'll reach more people. They say that being a Baptist limits them uh, because Baptist has such a bad, bad rap. And so, therefore, if you take it off, you, don't, you get yourself out of the box, so to speak, and uh, you're now you're interdenominational, and it'll bring in everybody. Do we really want to bring in everybody? No, no. I mean, I understand the concept. For God so loved the world, we all want to get people saved. But we just want to open the door and say, we don't have anything we really believe. Come on in. Well, next thing, we'll be having same-sex marriages down the road here. I mean, we just that, do we really want that to happen? But I, I've seen it all the time. I, I, I've seen guys, I've seen pastors get up, and they put their people under the most tremendous financial burden that they can to go into a building program to build a $10, $20, $30 million building uh, for a church because the idea is if we have a big church, we can fill it up with people. I, I, I know the rationale. I, I've been around it all my life, but that's not how you do it. I've seen God's people buy a house they, or buy a car or buy this or buy something that they never should have tried to buy. They could have never fit it in their budget, but they justify it by simply saying, you know what? Well, if we got a big house, we could have all kinds of people over the church. Look how we can minister. Well, not if you can't pay for it. <laughs> but that's what we do. Oh, let's put in a coffee shop because we'll make, we'll, when we have a coffee shop in our church, people will hang out. We'll have more people. We'll get to introduce them to Jesus because they'll come for coffee and we'll have this. Hey, let me tell you something. You know, oh, let's put a gymnasium in, you know, and a health club and a racquetball court and people will come and you know what we'll do? Oh, what a great idea. <clears throat> we can get people to make church the center of their life. Now, I'm all for that, but I won't tell you something. The thing that needs to be the center of your life is not a building with a gym or a racquetball court or a Starbucks. It needs to be the book you got in your lap today but that's where we're at see that's where we're at i've seen how it goes king of the hill man churches work today very very hard to try to to make every pedic very comfortable 
And that's just what we do. We appeal to sight and sound. So we put on musical presentations. Easter, there'll be a thousand Easter cantata or cantatis going on all over this city. You already see them on the billboards. And they want to have plays, and they want to have this, and they want to have that. You see, somebody said, what is the difference between the early church and the church today? The early church, the church today puts on pageants of what the real church was living back in those days. I had a lady tell me one time, she said, I, says, I saw her reading a book, and she says, oh, I'm in, I'm in the Christian fiction. And they're actually writing books now about people doing great things for God and great stories, but it's fiction. Now, do you know why? I mean, you know the mindset behind that? Do you know why that guys have to write Christian fiction about people doing great things for God? I'll tell you why. Because there ain't nobody doing anything great for God today. So we now we're in the fiction realm of it. But that's where most Christians live anyhow. You know, the word fiction comes from fictitious. I don't know what it means, but it just comes from that word. <laughs> I knew a pastor one time, and, and, and Monday morning was the worst day of his life. You know why? He was so depressed on Monday morning. I mean, you, couldn't, you, want, you, didn't want to, you wanted to stay away from him. He would go into his office, lock the door, put his hands on his hand, and he'd just stay there all day because they worked so hard all week long to get people there, to do everything uh, that make it, not because they wanted them there uh, for ministry. No, no, they wanted them there because they wanted to brag about how many they had. I lived in a day where churches had Sunday school campaigns with another church maybe in Michigan or Indiana or California, and they were likewise about the same size congregations. So they had Sunday school campaigns to get people to come and the one who, the church who won, the other pastor had to fly in and present the trophy to him. And it was a big hoopla. It was nothing about getting people saved. It was, we want to win this contest. It wasn't about, we want to really change your life. It was what, we need your money because no bucks, no buck Rogers, and look at all we're trying to do. I know how the game plays. I, 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 I've seen it many, many times. Now, personally, I've never had that problem. And this is why I've never fed in with that crowd. And I don't misunderstand me. I love people. My whole life is given to people. I mean, I'm done here. I'll probably get 20 phone calls this afternoon, get 40 tomorrow, probably got a Bible study tomorrow, I think. We do. And then got starting tomorrow night, right down the line, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. My whole life is centered around people. I enjoy people. I like people. I like people with their problems. I mean, I just do. But don't misunderstand me. I love you and want you to uh, serve God with me. But I follow my own reasoning and my own teaching, believe it or not. Remember the principle? You heard me say, I don't want you to, I won't want you to do right any more than you do. Well, I follow that right down the line. I don't care about how big this church gets. I don't care about a thousand people, 500 people, 400 people. I don't care. I don't want you here this morning any more than you want to be here. I'm with you. Somebody says, well, I don't like this church. I don't like it either. I'm with you. <laughs> well, I'm going to go find another one. I can't. I get paid for being this one, but I don't like it either. Now, our passage today is a great one, and I want to say something to you. There's messages that you take in stride. There's messages that you get something out of. There's messages that you don't maybe do anything with, but I want to tell you something. If you have a desire and have some kind of design in your heart about ever serving God, the key to that is going to be learning how to please God with your testimony to Him. 
And the key to that is what I'm going to give you in the next six hours and 43 minutes. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Here's the victory. When I read it, you won't probably think it is the victory. But when I break it down in the next half hour, you will see it as the victory. Now, here's what he said. <clears throat> now, thanks be unto God, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet Savior of Christ, and them that are saved, <clears throat> and in them that perish. To one, we are the Savior of death unto death, and to the other, the Savior of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for <clears throat> the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we love you today, and we come to you <clears throat> as a needy people. We need you to help us today, especially the men and women of this church who have a desire and a design to, to serve you. Lord, they will never go anywhere uh, for very far until they understand this great concept. There's just too many things out there, too many people with crazy problems and too many things that draw on them and suck their strength out that if they don't grasp this thing and don't get this in place, uh, they'll, Lord, they'll just be along the roadside someplace and we don't want that to happen. So help us today. Help us to understand the context and uh, of pleasing you. Help us to understand this great principle, how that we should always, Lord, uh, uh, have the victory. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, here's your victory, and your victory, as I already said, lies in your attitude about something. And uh, <clears throat> here is everything you need to keep the three most important aspects of your life and your ministry working together in harmony, your perspective, your motive, and your attitude of heart. Now, verse 14 says, <clears throat> Now, thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. I want to think about that verse for just a minute. It says, Now, thanks be unto God, or thanks be to God, which always, always, in every circumstance, in every, in every situation, always, always, you see what it says? Always causes us to triumph. Then why is God's people defeated today? If that verse means what it says and it's true, that verse says, thanks be unto God, which always, 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 always causes us to triumph. Now, without, before we get any farther into it, that is the key to your pleasing God with your testimony. It says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. You cannot do ministry in your own strength. Yet, 99, if not almost 100% of it is done today in our lives. Note the triumph here that he says, the triumph we have is in Christ, not yourself always causes us to triumph in Christ. You know, people set themselves up for failure. And that's our second biggest problem. When we don't have the right attitude and we have the right motive, because we don't have the right perspective, but we don't have the right motive, and we want to do it the best we can, but you don't get the right perspective on it, you have just set yourself up for failure. You cannot have the victory without putting these three things in your life and balance them out in your life. You just cannot. You just cannot. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. So when I'm talking about this triumph, I'm talking about the triumph of, of you, you, you rejoicing when nobody else can rejoice. 
I'm talking about in Christ. He will cause you to rejoice when you actually have no cause to rejoice. It's a great verse. You know, in the ministry, you see all kinds of things. And in the ministry, you gotta, you got to come to the point where, <clears throat> I know I can only speak for myself. Most of you, uh, you deal with one people or two people that are working with me at this point. Down the line, the way we're going to set it up, and I'll show you that Saturday, it's going to be a whole different format. But in my world, I, and I can't speak for you, but in my world, uh, you know, you deal with one person's problem, I deal with 240 people's problems. And some of them, you know, are horrendous problems. Some of them are problems that are simply because uh, people did not listen to the Bible, They're because that people want to do their own thing and don't want to do what the Bible says. And many times, you know, my week starts with, with, with terrible marriage tragedies that should never be. It starts, it goes on to issues in people's lives that, that God's people's lives that have, have gotten themselves in such a mess. Whether it be booze, whether it be sexual sins, whether it be drugs, no matter what it may be. And their wife is overwhelming them. Now, you just see it on a once-in-one basis. I deal with it day after day after day after day after day. It, it's, it's the end of the week. You, 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 you look back and you think, man, this looks, like a, this looks like Hiroshima right after the bomb dropped. So many people's lives are absolutely in disarray. So many people's lives are absolutely in tragedy. But if you would call me up in the middle of the week, or you would see me on Thursday night, or you'd call me up and you'd say, Bob, how's your week going? I would tell you, my week is going absolutely incredible. If somebody would say to me, Bob, how's your church doing? I'd say, my church is right where God wants it to be, and I couldn't ask it at this point to be any better. In spite of what the tragedies are, you know what? I'm not losing the victory that God has given me. You may lose it in your life, but Bible says He always causes me to triumph. You probably won't learn this lesson today. You probably won't. You need to, but you probably won't. But if you learn what I'm about to lay out for you, it doesn't matter what somebody else does in their world. It doesn't matter the tragedies that you have to deal with. All that matters is is that you have the victorious Christian life for you. Because God always causes us to triumph. Always. Always. No matter how bad it gets. He'll cause me to triumph when I look around and you say, there isn't any reason to triumph. Maybe not from your perspective, but from his perspective, there is. You better get this. If you don't get this, stay a lint ruler. I mean, that's a valuable job. There'll be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not joking. For just cleaning the building. Stay with that. We need that. That's a vital aspect. But I'm telling you, we're talking about brain surgery. We're talking about heart transplants. We're talking about that when you get into the ministry, you have to deal with the absolute lowest depravity of man that you'll ever see, that you'll ever get into. Maybe not every day, but there's going to be situations that are absolutely catastrophic. And if you don't learn to balance it out, it'll run you over.
And that's why God's people are defeated today. Now I want you to look at the last part of that verse. It says, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Not only will God give you the victory, but he will use you and your triumph through whatever circumstances you have to deal with to let others know about him through your victory. Wow, it's no wonder the devil wants to keep God's people defeated. Being a testimony of God for all that you do. Remember now, Genesis 5, Hebrews 11, that he had this testimony before his translation, Enoch, that he pleased God. Now, the second word here is the word manifest. We're going to talk about savor and manifest. Now, the second word here is manifest. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, here it comes, was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. Now, just as Christ was manifest in the flesh when he came down to earth, when he went back to heaven, he wants you and I to be manifest in the spirit as a child of God, as the person of Christ and his priesthood. The Bible says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10 says, Always being, always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. There it is. You and I, because he was manifested to the world, now you and I are to be manifested by the Spirit of God to the world. That's the first beginning. Now the second key word here, when you grasp all of this, is also quite incredible. And you're asking yourself right now, well, how does God do that? How can, after what you'd explain the ministry to be, after you realize that the pravity of man doesn't stop when God's people, when people get saved, that you're going to deal in God's people's life with the same godless, filthless, perverted, uh, sexual sins, drink sins, drug sins. I mean, it's going to be at the bottom of the barrel sometimes. And yet, at the same time, how do you balance all of that out and stay, keep the victory? Well, I'll tell you one thing. The Bible says you better figure out because he says always, always, always causes us to triumph. Thank God for it, he says. Amen, buddy. Amen. Amen. Now, he says, and maketh manifest. We already got the word manifest. Here it comes. The savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, look at that first part of that verse 15. For you are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Now, the word savor is our second word. The word savor means to taste or to smell. When you savor something, you either taste it, linger with that taste for a while, but in most cases, it's a smell. And you, you, you take the, uh, the savor of that smell, that it smell that is pleasing. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the first time, and we talked about this Thursday night, the first time you find this word in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. I told you we we're going to come here. And the first time that word shows up in your Bible is Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. And it defines for us this great truth, how do we all begin to understand how we always have the triumph. He says in 820, and this is where Noah builds an ark, an altar. 
And Noah, building an altar. This is the first time an altar is built in your Bible. I think I told you that Thursday night. It's also the first time the word Savior shows up. And they're connected. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord, here it is, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living uh, th- uh, uh, thing living as I have done. Now, I want you to notice, this is after the flood, after God's judgment. Noah builds an altar. He sacrifices the animals on it, first time in the Bible. And when those animals begin to burn, the Bible says a odor goes up in the smoke of that burning flesh, and God smells a sweet savor, verse 21. And the smell of that sacrifice appeases God's anger and wrath that he's no more going to judge the world at that time. Now, there's your definitive passage, and it sets up for us the greatest study you'll ever undertake in the Bible and sets the stage for us always having the triumph in everything, if you get it. If you get it. Now, let's move up a little bit. Sometime later, we get into the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now we're under the law. And now we find that the thing is exaggerated. He, he broadens it. Once he puts the nation under the law, he gives them five sacrifices, five of them. He gives them Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 5, a burnt offering, a meat offering, a peace offering, a sin offering. And then in Leviticus 22, the day of atonement offering. Now, they're all different, and there's a great study in that in itself. They're all different as to far as what they contain and what they do, but they all have one thing in common, and that is they're burnt on a brazen altar. And there's a difference now, if you want to get real theological about it, why Noah made his altar out of stone, and this one's made out of brass. But they all have one thing in common. They're all burnt offerings. And when they burn them, God smells the Savior, uh, the savor of that smell of that offering. And whatever that man's sin was is now appeased by the smelling of that sweet savor, that sacrifice. Now, I want to add to this. It was the priest that was responsible for the sweet savor and the nostrils of God based on his ministry of taking and making the sacrifices. You need to put that down. Because just as the Old Testament priest was responsible for it back there, you and I should be responsible for it today. With where I'm going with this. Now let's move up a little farther. When Christ died on the cross, the Bible claims it very clear that from the sixth and the ninth hour, he literally... Paid the price that you and I would have paid in hell. He didn't literally go to hell, but the devil brought hell to him on the cross. And this is why you hear him cry out what an unsaved man cries out. He says, I thirst. He cries out, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast forsaken me? In the old book of Job, back there in Job chapter 30, I think it is, the Bible talks about his bones being burnt black with heat. On that sixth and the ninth hour, Christ literally paid the price in hell. And during that time when he's dying on the cross, he became your my sacrifice. And when he's burning spiritually, and he's burning in that sacrifice, the thing that appeased your sin and my sin was God smelling the sweet Savior of that sacrifice, his son, as it filled his nostrils and it saved us from going to hell. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 through 14 says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests, Old Testament, went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But under the second went the high priest, alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way uh, into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. Which is a figure, I want to mark that, which is the figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the surface perfect as pertaining to the conscience. He's basically saying here, the Old Testament sacrifices were good, but they were only temporary. The old priests, they did the work. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies one time. But what he's getting ready to tell you, that that was a figure of the true one which Christ was going to fulfill. And just as you and I now operate down here as priests in this world, in this tabernacle, the reason why we do is because my high priest, Jesus Christ, at one point went into the Holy of Holies and laid the sacrifice on the altar. And you know what God did? God smelled that sacrifice and he says, that's going to appease Bob Alexander's sin. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. He says in verse 10, which stone only in the, meat, in the meats and the drinks and the divers washings and the carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time uh, of, of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one up there, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, and neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of the unclean sacrifice to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He did. Because when he died on that cross, just as the Old Testament sacrifice was built, just as Noah built the altar, that smoke went up of that burning flesh of that innocent animal. And God smelled that burning flesh. And it appeased God. And it pleased God. And God stayed his hand of judgment. That's why John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He was my Lamb on the altar. And when God smelled that savor of his Son on the cross, that's how we got it. Now, let's make it even closer. You've heard me talk about the book of Song of Solomon many times. Have you ever noticed how much emphasis... In that book, God puts on how we smell. Everything he uses to describe our relationship with him. Have you ever noticed that how it has to deal with something that smells good and smells pleasant? He talks about the church, you and me, in our relationship with him, in our perfect fellowship. He says it's like a cluster of camphor. He says it's like cedar and fir wood. They have a smell to them. He says it's like lilies. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Christ's coming uh, is perfumed with mirth and frankincense and all powder. He likens to our relationship every day in chapter 4, <coughs> verses 12 through 14, like a garden 
with fruit and spikered and saffron and, and, and all of the cinnamon and the aloes and all of the chief spices. Can you close your eyes and imagine a garden with all that beautiful smell uh, mixing itself with a fragrance that is absolutely the most intoxicating, pleasing thing you could ever smell? And all that through the book of Song of Solomon, the church as Christ's bride is likened to a woman who has perfumed herself, who has powdered herself, and smells intoxicating to the Lord. It's about our smell. Now, just to change courses here for a moment, this is why we try to imitate that with our flesh. You ever notice and think about this? Everything that comes out of our flesh stinks. Everything. There isn't one thing in our flesh that it emits, whether it be sweat or breath, whether it be whatever it is. Everything that comes out of this flesh stinks to high heavens. But we are constantly trying to make our flesh look good and smell good. We buy gum. We buy toothpaste. We buy mouthwash. We buy soap and water. We buy deodorant. We put on aftershave. We wear cologne. We put on perfume. We wear makeup. We wear lipstick. We, we put on body oils. We get skin cream. We take a bubble bath. <laughs> I don't, but some of you do. Uh, everything we do, it's all to make this, this, this pleasing to somebody else. You go out and pick up your girlfriend and you say, wow, you smell good. She says to you, oh, I love that cologne. They even name it after seductive things. Then I can't rethink of any of them right now, but they are. Seduction, passion, Holstein. It's big with farmers' wives. Honey, you smell like a Holstein. Thank you. You know, the TV makes millions of dollars off the telling you how much your flesh stinks. And you sit there and take it. I've never understood it. You let somebody tell you on television you got a scaly scalp. You let somebody tell you like your, 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 your skin looks like number four sandpaper. You let, you let somebody tell you how your teeth are crooked. You let somebody tell you how you, how you, you never want to, you're always got the big sweat spots under your arm, you know, and your, your, your mouthwash ain't making it and your deodorant ain't cutting it. You sit there. I've never known anybody that turned the TV off through a chair, through the television set. You sit there and listen to them tell you how rotten you are. And then you know what you do to add insult to energy? You go out and buy the product. But you come here one time and hear me tell what's wrong with you, and you'll get mad and leave. There's something wrong with man. Amen. I'm telling you. Now, with that understood, just as Christ. Death on the cross was the sacrifice that God smelled to appease him of our sins and to reconcile us to God, the high priest. Now my life as a Christian, as a priest, is to be a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And always to let God manifest that savor of my life with God to gain the attention of others, how I smell to them spiritually. This is why 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason, 
of the hope that lieth within you with meekness and fear. You see that? There's nobody going up and knocking on somebody's door and trying to force themselves into their world. That's what Christianity does today. There's somebody who smelled the difference. There's somebody who just didn't see the difference. They smelled the difference. They smelled the difference and they came up and they said, where did you get that cologne? I got it out of that book right there. It's not how you look. It's not what you do. It's how do you smell. That's the key. That's the key. Genesis chapter 27, there's a great principle there. We'll get to it in counseling. And it's the story where Jacob gets deceived. And you know the story how that uh, uh, or, uh, he, uh, J- and Jacob deceives his father. And he puts on the raiment of his brother Esau. And he goes in there to Isaac and he, he tries to pull off the fast one. And he does. But oh, it's a great principle. Because, boy, is that a picture of what a lot of God's people try to do. And the old man got confused, but he had it right. He said, wow, this is strange. He said, this sounds like Jacob, but it smells like Esau. Now, that's a great principle when you start dealing with people. Some of you sound like Christ, but you smell like something else. No, no, you've got all the terminology around. You've got your Bible today. You've got that meek and humble look in your face. You're always there, you know, always trying to put out, the, put out the thing, how great you are, what you do. And it works with most people. But this is the key. This is why getting the Bible principles down, this is what it works and shows you. Because you know what? How many times I've stood there and after somebody's left or somebody I've talked with somebody and they've laid something out, told me what great things they're going to do. My mind goes back to that same thing right there. It says, wow, that sounded like Jacob, but it sure smelled like Esau. Hey, in our lives, it's not what God sees. It's what he smells. We all say something rotten in Denmark. Doesn't smell right. It says this thing smells. Yeah. It's not what God sees in your life and my life. It's what he smells. See, God figured the thing out. You can say whatever you want to say. You can pray holier than now. You can pretend you are. But deep down inside, song a song with a relationship really hits the rubber meets the road. I'll tell you what it is. It isn't what you do. It isn't what you say. It's how you smell. If God's people would get this down, if they would quit worrying about how they look and smell to the world and start worrying about how they looked and smelled to God, pleasing Him is based on how you smell to Him, His sacrifice being manifested in your life. That's why Philippians chapter 4 verse 18 says, But I have all in abound. I am full, having received of Ephrodites the things which were sent from you. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. There it is. That's what we're supposed to be. Now, with all of that, here's your victory. Here's why you and I should always triumph. And if you don't learn this, stay out of it. If you don't learn to balance your perspective, your motive, and your attitude, it's going to produce the wrong action or the right action based on how you get it. Now, here's what he says. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are a sweet savor. Uh, we, are, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Okay, that's where we've got so far. You understand that? We understand now what the word savor and manifest means. 
You understand the models from Noah up to the Old Testament, up to Christ dying on the cross, and then you and I. We cut that all together now. You now realize that it isn't about what you do or how you look, but rather how you smell. I gave you all kinds of examples of that. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. For we are under God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and them that perish. To the one we are a savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life and who is sufficient for these things. Now verse 15 says we are a sweet savor of Christ unto God in them that are saved and them that are perish. You see, the Bible says to the one the savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life. To the lost man, the preaching of Christ is stupid. Now, I'll give you a great example of that. If you have been on the Sinai Desert, it gets about 114 degrees during the day. It's hot. And the wind constantly blows. Now, you know as well as I do that when they took that sacrifice and they put it on that altar at 120 to 114 degree temperature, and that flesh starts to burn. And that smoke starts to go up. And that thing starts, the wind starts to carry it. If you were walking downwind of that sacrifice, you'd think that was the most god-awful smell you ever smelled in your life. But to God, it was pleasing. You know what that tells me? God doesn't look at things the same way we do. When the world hears this preaching, they think it's nuts. When you preach about Christ, they think it's crazy. They think you're a cult. They think you're off your rocker. They look at it and it stinks to them. And you see, because you're so result-orientated, that bothers you, doesn't it? You go up to witness to somebody, they shut you down. You try to help somebody and they slam the door. Go back to the world. You try to help somebody, get them through their problem, they turn around and blame it on you and leave you hanging. And you take that personal, see? See, I've never had that problem. And you need to learn not to have that problem. You do to understand that there are people who claim to love God who don't love God. There's people who claim to want to do right who don't want to do what's right. And he says, the one is the savor of death unto death. The lost man, the preaching of the Christ stinks to him. Christians out of fellowship, it, it stinks to him. But you get a saved man that loves God and loves the word of God and wants to do what's right. The Bible says he the love of the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. He takes those things, he learns from those things, and it's a, it smells like heaven to him. To some of you, you go out of here, this message stunk. It, it sticks in your nostrils as a stench because you were told that your lifestyle is not pleasing and your testimony is not pleasing. And as far as God smelling you this morning, you stink the high heavens. You don't like it. Some of you say, boy, that's me. Yes, sir, you got my number. Thank you for getting my number. Can you call me more often on that number? Boy, I need that. Here's the key. My job is not to please man. My job is not to please you. And that's another problem we fall into. Now, I want to help you I want to do whatever I can for people. But you cannot fall into the trap that you go around in the ministry just trying to please people. Had a guy say to me one time, he says, you know what? Uh, how can you help me with this? And I said, well, I'll help you any way I can. And he says, well, this is what I want. 
And I say, you know what? Maybe we ought to forget what you want. Maybe we just ought to give you what you need. My job is not to please man. My job is to please God. And so is yours, by the way. Now, that doesn't mean you be mean, nasty, like some of God's people are. I mean, a lot of God's people just get an attitude. They get an edge. Whenever you ask them, they're always mad about any, everything. And you're afraid to go approach them for anything. You know, they get lo- real loose patience with people. You just need to roll in. Your perspective and my perspective, my motive and your motive, my attitude and your attitude is to please God, not man. And you do that by always exalting Christ. You see, the real victory here and the real triumph is here. We're so results orientated. When I preach, when I talk, when I witnessed about God's Son, God smells that savor of His Son's sacrifice that He died for all mankind. It reminds God of that smell that He smelled on Calvary's cross. And when He smells that, He smells that by you and I witnessing about Christ. It doesn't matter if the person does right or the person doesn't do what's right. That's never the issue. Now, don't misunderstand me. You've got to listen to me now because some of you are going to take this and, and you're going to get what you want to get out of it. I, I, I do care that you do right, but I don't care if you don't do right. Can you understand that? I want you to do right, but not more than you want to do right. I care about you doing right, but not to the point it's going to mess me up. I want you to do what the Bible says. I've spent my whole life preaching truth to you. But it doesn't matter if the person rejects it. You know what? It doesn't matter. As long as God smells the sweet savor of what I said about to you, about Christ's death on the cross, and that pleases Him, that's good for me. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you do right or not. I'm never going to lose the victory because every time you and I should open our mouths, it's about Him. God is pleased because He smells that savor. Not about whether you do right or not. The results never matter to me, though the results matter to me. A Christian should never really care about the decisions a person makes, even though I care about the decisions you make. To a point, I won't care about what you do and the decision you make past the point that it's going to affect me. It's like the rapture. I want everybody to go to heaven. If you're lost here today, I want you to get saved. If you're lost here today, I want you to trust Christ. I'll stay here till 6 o'clock if that's what it takes. I'll do whatever I can do. Come over and see me. I'd love to have you get saved. I'll open up the Bible. If you don't understand it, I'll take whatever time it takes. I want people to get saved. But when that rapture sounds, goodbye, world, goodbye. You're on your own, pal. It's yours. It's yours. I want you to get saved. But boy, when that rapture sounds and that old trumpet blows, I ain't saying, I ain't, I ain't coming to look for you to see if you're going. I'm not going to look around to see if you made it. I'm going to make where I need to be, and I'm going to be the first time in my life in a place that whatever I do, whatever I say, whatever I think is going to really please him. I don't have to cap my guard up one time anymore. And boy, when that ra- I want you to be saved. I want you to trust Christ. But that trumpet sounds, goodbye, world, goodbye. I'm out of here. It's yours, pal. It's yours. Back there in that bag is my car keys. 
I got a dog there I'm keeping for Pam and John. Please feed it the rest of the day or till the tribulation comes or whatever it goes. I don't know. You can have my car, you, both cars, all three cars. You can, have, you can have Otis. Please take Otis. You can have whatever you need. The refrigerator's got food in it. There's all kinds of stuff you'll enjoy. Take my clothes if they fit. Take them if they don't fit. Goodbye, world, goodbye. That's you, pal. That's on you. It, it doesn't matter to me. End of the day, it doesn't matter to me. If you reject what I preach to you on Sunday, if you reject what I give you on Thursday, I want you to do what's right. But at the end of the day, I got the victory and I will never, 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 never allow you to take that triumph from me. Why? Because you don't want to do right. Never happened. Never happened. Why should your insistence of sin in your life and failure ruin my day? I could have somebody take an axe and kill nine people this week. Somebody call me on the phone and say, how's your church doing? It's doing great. We got more people to do it, and we just got room for seven more. (laughs) Goodbye, world, goodbye. (laughs) The victory for me, and it should be for you. My triumph, your triumph, is not whether you do right or not. You know what? I love you. You know I love you. And you know what I'm talking about. But I'm telling you, bottom line, end of the day, I don't care if you all turn from God. I don't care if you all get into sin. I don't care if you all leave and go back to the world. I don't want you to. I wouldn't advise you to. But I'm a no fool. I know if push comes to shove, half you would be out of here tomorrow. I have no illusion that someday I may stand all by myself for God. And you know what? If that's what it comes down to, if you all left, if you all got mad, if you all went someplace else, I don't care. You're not taking my triumph. Because anytime I talk about Christ, anytime I exalt Christ, anytime I lift up Christ, it is a sweet Savior and the nostrils of my God and it pleases Him. That's all I care about. I don't care about the results. You say, well, I'm not going to do what's right. I'm going to stay in my sin. This is who I want to be. <laughs> well, I'm going to leave this church. I'm going to go to another church. I'm going to find one where they love me and they're all this and that. The doors are wide open. Look at it back there. They did it today. It's wide open. You know what, folks? My job is to exalt Christ in everything I do. You want to moan and complain about the way, oh, come on. Here's the victory. Quit whining about everything else that you don't like. Quit whining about everybody else not doing right. Quit whining about the state of God's people. They all stink. What has that got to do with you doing what's right? What has that got to do with your perspective, your, your, your motive, and your attitude of heart? 
I don't care about them. I mean, I do. I'd do anything to help you. But at the end of the day, goodbye, world, goodbye. You want it, you can have it. You want the lifestyle, you can take it. It ain't going to ruin my day. If I had 90 to commit suicide, two a day. So my pastor friend called me up and says, how's things going your church? It is going great. Your choice to do what you shouldn't do isn't the fact that it's going to affect me. No, I'm sorry you did. I wouldn't advise you to do it, but I'm not such a fool that I think because you decided to kill yourself. That was a split second thing. Oh, I'm happy today. Oh, I'm going to kill myself now. No, that's another bad choice of a lot of bad choices that you made because you won't do what's right. Unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, it's your last bad choice. But it's your choice. What? I'm going to quit? Because some of you want to live in sin, I'm going to get out of the ministry? Because some of you want it. Well, if that was the case, I wouldn't have got, I've been out of this thing a week after I was in it. I'm going to stop preaching now and, and stop winning people to Christ because some of you don't want to do what's right with God. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Because you could care less about the Bible, I'll just throw mine away. <laughs> I got it. For any NFL scout, scouts here today, I have got my contract goes longer than yours. I'm supposed to stop. I'm supposed to quit. Because somebody in your family doesn't do what's right. I'm, you're supposed to just throw up your hands because your husband or wife won't do what's right. You're supposed to quit. You're going to get defeated. Let me tell you something. That Bible says, thanks be to God, which always, always, always causes me to triumph. All I care about is that every day of my life when I end my day that day, I smelled good with God. I can't take responsibility for you. I will not take responsibility for you. I'll help you. I'll teach you. I'll preach to you. I'll spend time with you. But I will not. Listen to me. I will not take responsibility for your inactiveness of not giving back to God what he gave you. And I'll tell you something else. It isn't going to stop me from doing what God's called me to do. My victory and my triumph lies in the fact that no matter what the end result is, good or bad, what you decide to do, God's pleased when I just exalt Him, and that is my triumph in everything. I'm sad that you didn't make it. I'm sad that you didn't do what's right. I feel sorry for you, but you know what? It's your choice, and the bottom line, even though you didn't do what's right, the very things I preached was pleasing to God the fact that you decided not to take it, it's all yours, baby. Help yourself. You see, <clears throat> my victory and my triumph lies in the fact that no matter what the end result, good or bad, God's pleased with us. Our self-sacrifice reminds him of what his son did on the cross. And he acquaints, here it comes, <clears throat> he acquaints us then with his son. And that works for me. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph. And then he says in verse 16, and who is sufficient for these things? Boy, that's an understatement. How do you grasp that? <coughs> Many people don't. Most people don't. But if you ever get it, if you ever grasp it, if you ever see that for what it is, and you understand what that smell concept is between you and God in the Song of Solomon? 
And how it isn't about what you do, it's how you smell. And how you smell depends on your inside relationship with him. Who is sufficient <coughs> for these things. Hey, God's people will wear you out. <coughs> they really will. All the whining and complaining and the childish acts, the temper tantrums. You know, all of the, all of the high chairs and the milk bottles and the formulas you got to fix. All of the family drama and all of the issues that go drive you insane if you don't keep your perspective and your motive and your attitude correct. And in ministry, if you don't get this, the sin problem, the bad choices, the, the continuance of sin in their lives, the hurt kids, the broken marriages, they'll wear you out and ground you to nothing. You got to live above the circumstances. You got to realize that in dealing with people, it isn't about their choices. It is, but it isn't. It isn't about whether they do right or not. It is, but it isn't. At the end of the day, all that matters is if you gave them the truth, God is pleased, and in that, that is my triumph. I'm not here to please you, I'm here to please Him. Now, every head bowed and every eye closed.